0: Hey there, church family. Thanks a ton for tuning in with us on this beautiful Sunday, and happy Halloween. Um, We've been in a teaching series the last few weeks in the book of Haggai. This is the third and final teaching. If you've missed any of the teachings, I want to encourage you to just go back on YouTube and watch the last couple weeks. Um, But to start, let me give you a quick crash course on what we talked about the last couple weeks to catch us up to speed and um, just continue on in the story of Haggai. So, um, the first week we talked about prioritizing the things of God. Um, we looked at how God's people who had been enslaved for 50 years were finally free to go home. And uh, 50,000 of the people of God said, okay, we'll, we'll accept that invitation and we'll go back home. So, they get to Jerusalem only to receive some threats and intimidation by some of the surrounding areas. So instead of building God's temple um, that had been destroyed, instead of prioritizing God's house, they began prioritizing their own lives, their own homes. Um, the, The people of God in Haggai's time were the original Chip and Joanna Gaines of the world. They started building, and after Haggai's encouragement to the people, Um, They got their priorities straight. They got back to work. They got fired up. It said their spirits were stirred up within them, and they started to build God's temple. Um, Last week, we talked about kingdom perspective. Um, The the people were laying bricks, so they're building God's temple, they're building God's house, and they start to get discouraged believing that their measly old bricks were never going to amount to the glorious temple that once was. Um, This is so so much like us when it comes to Um, serving God or it comes to our faith in Christ, asking is this really going to make a difference or are my prayers seriously changing things or is my investment really going to help or will my life truly serve a purpose in the grand scheme of God's kingdom? And through Haggai, God encourages the people. He says, stay focused, be strong, and continue to work. And the takeaway from last week was that when you do God's kingdom, kingdom work, you build more than you see. Um, Some of you came on stage if you were here in person, and we were giving out actual bricks, um, as if to say to me and to other people, this might look like a measly old brick, but it actually has the power to display God's glory as we do his work. Um, And that catches us up to this week. The people get back to work. Everything is going well. And then, once again, there's this theme here. Something happens. Rather than fear this time or discouragement halting the work this time, God actually comes in and halts the work. He, he says, time out, let's take a stop for a moment and think through an issue that was going on that many people may have, um, un, had, it had gone by unnoticed. They, they didn't realize what was happening. The issue they were facing is deeply theological, An error had crept into both their theology and their anthropology. There was a misunderstanding in both the nature of God and the nature of man. And what we're going to see happen is the people get to work. They have this realization, so you can picture with me, they have this realization that I'm building a holy temple for a holy God and and I'm doing work that is set apart and no one else is doing such a work as I. And slowly but surely they began to believe that since they're stacking bricks for a holy temple, that they too must be holy. They begin to walk around as if the holy temple that they had been working on is so contagious that they were growing in holiness by close contact. They thought, because I'm doing holy work, I must be holy. So the issue is twofold. Um, First off, the people lose sight of where their righteousness and holiness comes from. It's not from their work. Um, And then secondly, as the people engage in something religious or godly, they assume that they are entitled to God's blessing. Hey, God, I'm doing this for you. What are you going to do for me? They take on this mentality that God now owes me for taking one for the team and building this temple. It's in the middle of these beliefs that God sends Haggai for the third time. So let's read in, in chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the month, of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, this simply means it's been four months since the Israelites started building the, rebuilding the temple. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the lock. So, so he asks them, go to the priests, go to the mediators between God and man, and I want you to get some questions answered. Haggai wants to put the people on trial, essentially. We're going to look at what the law says about two particular issues one having to do with the holiness of God, and the other having to do with the sinfulness of man. It says in verse 12 If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said no. So in the, in the Levitical law, sin always means death. So, so if sin took place, God in his mercy, he gave us a way to care for sin. So what you would do is you would take a sacrificial lamb and you would kill it. And you would protect the meat in your garment on your way to the altar to make the sacrifice. And if you were to touch this meat onto something, the holiness of the meat would not transfer to the object that you covered, that you touched it on. So holiness was not transferable. Another way to ask this question is, can a clean object make a dirty object clean once again? Can you transmit holiness? Does a holy object have the mightest touch so that it can cause anything to become holy? The answer is no. Theologically, it's not true, and that's not how it works in real life. Like, you don't clean a car by throwing mud on it. You don't catch health. You actually catch a cold. In, in pediatricians' offices, they have sick kids' rooms, and they have well kids' rooms, and the fear isn't that the healthy kid is going to rub off on the sick kid. The fear is that this kid with the cold is going to all, infect all of the healthy kids. So holiness, purity, cleanliness are not transmittable. Then Haggai said... If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, so this is from Leviticus 22. It says that if a Jew were to touch a dead body um, of, of any kind, they were deemed ceremonially unclean. So they, they couldn't go into the temple to worship. They would have to wash themselves in a ceremonial bath called a mikvah. Um, and when they were done, they'd have to sit outside the camp until evening. Like it was a big deal then they would be able to come in and worship. And God had very clear instructions on how to approach him. Like, you didn't approach him on your terms, you approached him on his terms. Continue. So, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered priest answered, and said, it does become unclean. So, we see from the first question, it's impossible to transmit holiness But we see here that transmitting unholiness can actually be done. It is possible that in my sinfulness, I can defile holy things. But in my holy doing, I don't go around making things holy. Does that make sense? If you rub up against something dirty, it is likely that dirty will win. Um, I love how Mark Boda explains this. He has a life application commentary on this. Listen to what he says. He says, it is easy within the church today to bring our sacrifice, whether our verbal worship or our material contributions or our gifts and abilities, and yet be walking in disobedience either because of a heart that is, that is disengaged from God or because of a pattern of life contrary to God's best for us. It is easy to become the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, looking beautiful on the outside, bringing all the right sacrifices, and yet on the inside being full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. You can reference Matthew 23, 37, 27 for that. Haggai 14. Then Haggai answered them, saying, So it is with this people. Now, I thought that was so funny. He doesn't say my people like you know, when you get in trouble and, and you get called by your first name, it's not like my son. It's like Nick Mastrud, right? So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with all every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So th- what they offer is unclean. So far in this story, we've seen some amazing things we've seen a glimmer of godly repentance we've seen them stop building their own homes and and start reflecting on the building project of God's house we've seen some awesome heart change we've seen priority shifts we've seen bricks are starting to get laid in proper order the people um but The people still had a massive problem that was seeping into all of this good stuff that we see happening. The people were believing that just because their hands were busy working for a holy cause, then they just assumed that their hearts must be in the right place as well. They began to believe that just because they were building into something holy, that they in turn were holy. But we already proved theologically that this is impossible. Simply doing good works doesn't impute righteousness into your account. Righteousness is not earned by religious activities. Holiness is not earned by religious activities. So the trap they fall into is twofold. They're falling into the idea that if they just build that God will get off their backs and they'll become righteous— and the other idea is if I just build, God will see my works and he will take away any misfortunes in my life. This is vending machine theology. Like I put in work and you give me what I want. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That was going on 2,600 years ago. And friends, we are not immune in our day today. There are two theologies that they were tempted to develop as they were doing God's work. The number, number one, legalism. Number two, the prosperity gospel. These two theologies, I think, are first cousins to one another. These two things, were, were brought, if they're brought together, they lead to a deviation from the true gospel, and it turns our faith into a man's-centered, works-based faith. If we're not careful, we can become people who do things and believe and begin to believe that, that we have earned some kind of merit with God because of the work of our hands you and I can begin to believe that we are in right standing with God because of the good stuff we do or we are better than other people because of where we have spent our time. If we're not careful, we can view church engagements, maybe this viewing this video right now or, or serving people or worship, we can view these things not as a heartfelt reality but an obligated ceremony so that maybe if I do enough that God will be okay with me. If we aren't careful, we can believe that if we do enough, God might just accept me. And that's a dangerous track to be on that we need to confront this morning. The trap that that we are prone to fall into is seeing fortunes and misfortunes in this life as a result of our obedience or disobedience to God. We may be tempted to see our faith kind of as a formula. Maybe you've done this, like my church attendance, minus, I I won't use bad language that much, Plus, I'll do some good deeds for my coworkers and and I'll listen to wholesome music and I'll minus some of the time I've been on my phone and on technology and I'll times this by however many times I've read the scriptures this week. And and this equation will equal God's favor. And, And if I get the right formula, then God will reverse my misfortunes and the suffering in my life will begin to cease. The trap of this theology, even though it might look sincere on the outside, when you strip it all down, It's man-made superstition. It's a belief that you can provoke an act of God based on the condition of your performance. That's an exhausting trap to be in. How many of you know that you can perform all day long and your heart can be in all the wrong places? We can do really, really good things with the wrong heart. Friends, let me remind you and encourage you, if you get nothing out of this teaching today, I want you to get this. Your performance doesn't qualify you before God. Jesus does. The grace of God was sent to us in the person of Jesus, and the definition of grace is unmerited favor. And if you want to know what unmerited means, it means like you cannot earn it based on your performance. You just get it for free. Nothing you do gives you the right to it. Grace is grace because it's conditioned on God's work, not your own bricklaying. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, especially in Jesus' teachings. Jesus was all about the heart. If you don't know this, read through it. There's this section of scripture in one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. He says stuff like this. You have heard it said, dot, 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 but I say, dot, 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 let me read a couple. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. It's a good rule to live by. Um, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then again, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The point that Jesus is making is that he is far more concerned with the issue of the heart than following the rule. Like you could choose not to commit adultery, or you could choose to avoid murdering people, and you could still have a heart that's far from him. And, and this idea of the heart is laced all throughout the scriptures. Listen to how um, Dane Ortland puts it in the book um, Gentle and Lowly. He says this, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether this is in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not speaking of our emotional life only, not just our emotions, but of the central animating center of, who, who, of, of all that we do. So it is, it is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about when we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. That is what our heart is. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but it's the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and directs us. Spiritual maturity is when Christ owns that part of your life. His spiritual maturity is not living for Christ's heart and favor, but it's living from Christ's heart and favor. I love how one scholar puts it. Listen to this. This is sheer gold. The goal of spiritual growth is to live as if Jesus held unhindered sway over our bodies. Isn't that beautiful? Of course it is still we doing the living. We are called by God to live as our uniquely created selves, our temperament, our gene pool, our history, But to grow spiritually means to to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place. To perceive what Jesus would perceive if he was looking through our eyes. To think what he would think. To feel what he would feel. And therefore to do what he would do. What if God isn't after your works, but he was after your heart? This begs us to ask the question, does he have your heart? Does he have your heart, does he own your heart? I believe that works will follow if he owns this part of this animating part of your life. But we have to ask, does he just have my works or does he have my heart? Dane Ortland also says it like this. Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or to wake sleepy people or to advise confused people or to inspire bored people or to spur on lazy people or to educate ignorant people. He actually came to raise dead people. Finally being healed or finally getting that proper advice that you've been looking for or finally no longer being bored with, with faith or finally being educated or, or finally getting to work doesn't mean that we've arrived. It's being truly alive in Christ that, that will give us the life that we've always wanted. Are we alive in Christ? Does he actually own the deepest part of our hearts? Because that's what he's after. It's so easy to develop this mentality that yells to the heavens like, God, I go to church. I, I, I worship. I'm far more good than I am bad. But let me remind you of this famous parable that Jesus tells in, in Luke 18. It says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, uh, the other man, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here that's, that's praying as well. Like, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Like, God, thank you that I'm not like anybody else. Thank you, I'm just uniquely me. And then um, the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his heads to the, head to the heavens. He, he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I t- and it says this, Jesus says this famous line, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A humble posture before the Lord is one that is exalted in the kingdom of God. The game plan for establishing this new kingdom isn't through prideful productivity, but humble, heartfelt submission. I remember when my family was going through a really difficult time in college. And I remember thinking, God, I'm in Bible college for goodness sakes. Like, I've committed my life to you. I've given my plans to you. I've given literally all the money I have to you. I, I've earned the right for you to take this misfortune away from me and my family. Like, I've done all this for you. Won't you just do this little thing for me? I've devoted my life to you. Can't you just take this? I've done some holy brick laying for you. I've stacked so many bricks seemingly for your kingdom, and this is what I get in return? And there is a tension that we need to consider between being and doing. Being with Jesus, sitting, walking, reflecting, doing the deep soul-level work of receiving his grace and mercy amidst our sinful and broken lives— And then from that place, putting our hands to the plow, like Jesus is more concerned about the posture of our hearts than the labor of our hands. Jesus is more concerned with the posture of our hearts than the labor of our hands. But friends, don't forget, when he has our hearts, it's inevitable that our hands will follow. When he has our hearts, the fruit will be telling. I think a prayer that God's people should continually come back to, and I continually need to come back to this is, Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Think, we, we need to come back to this as we do kingdom work. As we aim to prioritize God's kingdom, we need to come back to the heart. Why am I doing this? Come back to the why. We need our perspective and our hearts renewed. Let's continue in Haggai 2.15. And then consider from this day onward, Before the stone was placed upon another stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures, but there were 10? When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. So in summary, you put all this work, he's saying you put all this work um, in with your hands and you only yield maybe 50% of what you're looking for. Why is that? Verse 17, and I struck you in all the products of your toil, and with blight or wind and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So he's saying, I want your heart to be surrendered to me. I wanted you to to rely on me. I wanted your heart, not just your works. And when I don't have your heart, you can only do so much. Religious work without the right heart posture can only produce so much is what God's communicating. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? So he's saying, look at over here at the barn. Is it, is it like, are you being super blessed? Is it packed? The answer is no. Just because they did a religious work doesn't mean they have no need for food it doesn't mean that God gave them every desire of their heart, they still have nothing. And then it continues indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. So for four months nothing had changed. Why? Because your religious activity does not entitle them to God's blessing. His blessing is not is it's not conditioned on the law, it's conditioned on grace. And I love what he says next. Um, after he had swayed their hearts, their hearts kind of shifted and they were in the right position and listen to what it says. But from this day on, I will bless you. He's saying your hearts have been on the wrong, in the wrong place this whole time. But from this day on, I will bless you. Why is that? Why now? What changed? The answer is grace. Grace changed everything. In this moment, the people's hearts were rendered full to God. If you try to live out your faith by just pulling up your bootstraps and just trying to get her done like they say in Baker City, you will only make it so far. You know what changes everything for the people of God today? The same thing, God's grace. We were lost in sin. We were dead without hope. And the scripture says this, listen to this in Ephesians 2, but God says in Haggai's story, but from this day forward, but we read in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, even when you were filthy in your sin, what did he do? He made us alive together with, with Christ. It says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in, in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a part right here that you need to pay attention to. And this is not your own doing. This is not your own brick stacking. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We can't walk around saying, yeah, look at all this kingdom work I've done. God owes it to me. No, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So what this develops in us is a church of leaders serving from a posture of undeserved blessing. I dream of that for our church, a a group of leaders who are serving with this posture of undeserved blessing, like, God, you've given me everything, and I owe everything to you. The blessing is in the ability to serve. The blessing is in the ability to be in relationship with Jesus when we once did not have that. We are blessed with the opportunity to serve, not entitled to God's blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Do you believe you have something to offer God? Or do you serve understanding that God has everything on offer for you? Let me say that again. Do you serve believing, man, I really have something to offer God? Or do you serve understanding, man, God has everything on offer for you and I? The best part about kingdom work is time with the king himself. It is possible to be so busy doing God's work that you miss him entirely. I don't want you to do that. Are you drinking from the deep well that is Jesus? Are you tethered to the king as you join him in his work? I love what St. Catherine of Siena says. She says, be who God made you to be and you'll set the world ablaze. I love that. I read that this week and I'm like, oh man, I gotta chew on that for a while. But to be honest, that vision just seems way too big for me. Like I so want that to be true of me. And I think we all want the set, set the world ablaze part. But, but the only way we become the type of people we were meant to be is by going to the one who made us. Only the author and perfecter of our faith can give us vision for how he wants to use us. So get lost in who he says you are. I think that's how we move forward. Let him do the deep work of loving for you, loving you and caring for you, and may that be the place in which you work from. May the work of your hands set the world ablaze, not because you're so good, but because the king is so good and you are working with him. And I wanna finish with this. Um, my prayer is that this would be rest for your souls as I read this. This is Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 30, absolute gold, but I'm reading the message transliteration here. And um, if you would, I mean, just close your eyes and just breathe this in as I read this to you. It says this, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. I love that partnership right there. Jesus is saying, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. it says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So the way Jesus' followers set the world ablaze is by keeping company with Jesus, getting away with Jesus, watching Jesus do things his way. You want vision for your life? You want to join in on the work that Jesus uses to change the world? Let me just say it won't happen by packing your schedule and just doing busy work and calling it kingdom building. It happens when you're working from a place of deep connection to the king of the kingdom. The challenge this week is, is simple (laughs) on paper. It's really, really difficult in in action and in reality. Keep company with Jesus. Keep company with Jesus. Before you do anything for God, simply be with him. Receive his love until your work is overflow. Get vision for your life from his living word because when you become who God made you to be, you will set the world ablaze.